This is The Authentic Professional. Real discussions with real people who work real jobs and live real lives. The Authentic Professional is hosted by Jacinta Gallant, a collaborative lawyer, mediator, and conflict trainer who decided to bring more of who she is to what she does. I'm Jacinta Gallant, and with me, as always, is my co-producer, my daughter, my colleague, Taylor Smiley. Happy New Year, everybody. Yes, Happy New Year. We have had a very nice break. Our office shut down for two weeks. I think we might have been the envy of many. It was very nice. I napped a lot, I ate a lot of food, and I snuggled with my dog a lot. It was great. Yeah, I think actually it's going to be hard for us to leave our puppies behind. Oh, Every day is a struggle. Well, we did think before Christmas that we needed to have more regular bring your dog to work. Now, that might be a bit difficult with Wiz, your giant but beautifully friendly German Shepherd. Yes, he takes up a lot of space. (laughs) (laughs) And when he welcomes people at the door, he is saying, hello, welcome, please come in. In a very loud bark. He has no idea how large he is. Yeah, or how, or how ferocious he can look. Yes, he really doesn't mean it. <laughs> Misinterpretation happens a lot with Wiz. Yeah, that's an interesting theme in, in today's podcast, how so often lawyers are tasked with achieving an outcome for clients, and we might, from the start even, misinterpret what our clients really want or need. Totally, and I think they even might feel like they should want or need something different than really what is going to make them happy in the long term. Law school certainly sets lawyers up for delivering. Uh, I was thinking about the new Netflix movie, Marriage Story, and how one of the, well, well, there were many things about that movie that made me feel very much like I wanted to educate the world about peaceful ways of handling divorce but at the same time remember near the end when her lawyers meeting her and said oh the agreement signed by the way I got you 55 percent of time and then the mother said well but we agreed on 50 50 and she said well I just got you the extra five percent yeah yeah that really I don't know I guess that hit a chord because that's that really emphasizes what Kevin says in the upcoming podcast that we're taught to focus on outcome when really our clients care about the process and how they feel and how their relationship is going forward a lot more than we are ever taught to think about at school. Yeah. Yeah, this this podcast was, I don't know, really a really meaningful conversation to me. Kevin and I have been friends for years, and we both spent time in the litigation trenches and I was a bit worried that this interview might seem anti-lawyers who choose litigation and I'm really hoping that's not the message. Uh, Kevin now even describes his role as a lawyer in in peacemaking terms Uh, but this podcast is intended to help everybody find a way to be authentic in whatever profession they choose. I don't know did you think the message might have been a bit hard on lawyers? I think it's okay for us to be hard on ourselves about things we're 
not great at. Like we're great at problem solving. We're great at advocating for our clients, but maybe it's good to be aware of the things that you could improve on. Like, like Kevin says, a peacemaker doesn't come to another place and create peace. Their job is to create a safe place where peace can be achieved. I am not the one imposing my peace. Others are creating it for themselves. And I just thought that was really enlightening because you hear of your job as a lawyer to be an advocate, to be a warrior, but I don't know, peacemaker really sounded like the right word when he said it. Yeah. So I hope our listeners will enjoy this interview of a lawyer as peacemaker. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. All right, well, today's guest is Kevin Scudder, an attorney, lawyer, who identifies himself in a way that I want him to introduce. He's a friend of mine from Seattle, Washington, and someone that I think you'll all be very interested to get to know. Kevin, when I look at your bio from time to time, because we've known each other for many years, what strikes me now is when you identify your profession, you say you are a? Peacemaker. Yeah, and you're a lawyer. So how does that connect? Uh, Jacinta, it's good talking to you, by the way. Um, the, the concept of peacemaker, you know, has come across or I guess come upon me. Uh, I want to kind of want to say like a ton of bricks because there was a clarity at some point of my work where I realized that the work I do, the values that I carry in my work, are that of a peacemaker. Um, and, you know, as we are warming up for this talk, we are kind of talking family of origin stuff. And uh, I think I come from a long line of peacemakers uh, in the sense that I have ancestors going back a few generations, uh, actually going back to the Revolutionary War here in the United States of uh, relatives funding the Revolutionary War. Uh, and throwing off the yoke of Britain. Uh, I've got a great-grandmother who was the patron for Ralph Ellison, who wrote the book uh, Invisible Man. Uh, you know, going back to my, uh, going to my dad and my mom, uh, my dad was a lawyer in Omaha, Nebraska, and he was the legal aid attorney for the entire city of Omaha, Nebraska. And so this concept of access to justice, uh, the voice of the client, uh, court systems as, or the legal system as healing is something that was uh, ingrained in me. And so I got out of Omaha after my 18 years, I graduated high school, went to school in the Northeast uh, moved out to Seattle in 1984, and I, boy, Jacinta, I tried so hard not to be a lawyer. Um, <laughs> I, I Tell me about did that. not want to. Uh, I did not want to. I was the youngest of three sons, uh, and there were six of us, so I was number four of six. And my dad had pride in in the business that he had created in Omaha, Nebraska. And um, when I was born, he was actually 
just out of the meatpacking plants and just finishing up law school. So he was in a second career. And he wanted someone to follow in his footsteps and take over his business. Uh, and I wasn't going to be the son that did that. I have two older, I had two older brothers who I thought should take the reins. Yeah, really, it's, isn't it their job? They get the privilege <laughs> no. of coming first. So, uh, but I came out to Seattle, and I, I was a late-night chef. I sold Army-Navy surplus, um, and I really tried not to go to law school, but I, I'm good uh, at working with people, good at organizing, good at um, speaking, uh, and I went to law school uh, graduated in 1989 and spent 20 years doing a lot of damage to people. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was, I was the warrior and the litigator. And uh, I came across collaborative practice in 2008 and had this just a physical sense of coming home, you know, where my shoulders relaxed, my heart relaxed, my breathing, my blood pressure went down likely. Um, and then, you know, from then on, you know, I, uh, stopped litigating and moved all of my work into out of court client focus, consensual dispute resolution work. Can we talk a little bit about though, those earlier years, because so many lawyers, um, if they were to trace their path back to what led them to law school and how you might connect the dots from that decision to your decision then to move into more of a peacemaking role as a lawyer? The decision to go to law school was, I, I think, the logical one, Jacinta, in the sense that um, I had tried other things and no, no passion bell was rung. And so I was working for a temporary service, and I said, just place me in law firms. I said, I need to, I need to see if this is part of who I am or not, because with my dad, I had seen the legal system um, be a healing thing. And I had also seen it be a vicious thing. And I needed, I guess I had an intellectual curiosity of finding out just what it was. Um, so when I went to law school, I did not want to make law review. I right. wasn't doing it for the grades. Right. Uh, I wasn't doing it to get a corporate job. I knew I wanted to work with people, you know, in the courtroom. And when you were in law school, did you meet many others with the same mindset or aspiration? Actually, very few. Yeah. Um, you know, which was really kind of a scary thing, Jacinta, because I I saw people who had gone right from elementary to middle to high school to college to law school. And more than one of them had these blank look behind their eye, like they were almost soulless or, or adrift. Um, and it was so much so after my first year of, of law school, I went to therapy. Right. Because I needed, I needed to process what was going on and say, hey, you know, I don't get this. You know, why are people so cutthroat here in the first year of law school? You know, throwing people under the bus. I, I had the, the contracts professor who, in response to one of my classmates' suggestions, put his finger in his throat and said, gag me with a spoon. That was the stupidest thing I've ever heard someone say. Response. Yeah. 
so so it, you know law school was a pretty crazy um, thing for one to do. But you know, many people don't if if they haven't gone to law school and experienced that. There's this stereotype that it's um, I don't know the television sort of version of of going to law school as being the idea of success and that's what your future will bring you is nothing but success and it's rarely mentioned how how many law students actually experience that disconnect that sense of what am I doing here I feel like I've entered another planet to the point that there's aye, aye. an American uh, lawyer Benjamin Stiles wrote the book The Soul of the Law because after his experience working as a lawyer he became a psychotherapist and ended up doing a lot of work in Chicago with lawyers and judges who were struggling to stay emotionally healthy in this work. Yeah, there. I mean, I think every bar association has an attorney's assistance program, you know, to help with the mental health and the addictions that come with lawyers or being a lawyer. Uh, and I think it's a great question of you can't really know until you get in it whether it's a fit. Um, yes, that's for sure. Yeah, because because there, there were certainly people in my school that have you know gone on and worked with Palestinian refugees and uh, just done some wonderful humanitarian stuff. Um, so I think it's there if you want it, but. You're, we're so young when we go to law school is that how do we really know what it is that we want to do? And I, I you know, you asked the question of the, the connecting the dots as to being a peacemaker, you know, and law school is just part of that spectrum. Um, but I know when I got, when I started my peacemaking work, it was a process of unlearning so much of what I learned in law school because it's not conducive to the, the work that you and I do, actually. But it's a good question of how do we educate pe people, young people, who want to go to law school, and we get to ask them why. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't know if anyone asks them why. Yeah. I think uh, I'll tell you a story about my daughter's experience. She graduated from law school in April. And her first day of law school, and that would have been first-year law school, they brought all the first-year students together, and one of, the, one of the announcements was, hey, by the way, uh, lawyers are now seen to be the number one profession uh, for suicide rate. And that was an American study. And I'm not sure how they even defined the word profession because I always thought that was weird. Nonetheless... The message sent to my daughter at her first day of law school was, be careful. But I can't say that the law school provided anything more than be careful. You know, that there still doesn't seem to be a dramatic change to the culture of law school where a bunch of people who have competed to get there continue to compete to rise to the top or not. You know, like you said, you made the choice to not worry about making law review, and yet you're stuck in this environment where you can learn so much about the motivations of other people who choose to go into the same profession that you and I chose. In some ways, it's, it's a great learning opportunity and a reality check, and in another way, it's, it's sad to me to see that the culture hasn't changed in 25 years. 
Yeah, I agree. I think about it, Jacinta, that, you know, there was a disconnect between our values because we didn't know. We we were only 26 once or however old we, you know, and um, our head had been filled with, you know, you need to be a success. You need to pay your mortgage. You need to make your car payment. You need to get married, partner up, have a family. Uh, We don't know how to do all that. Right. And um, then we start getting into crazy land where we're learning things that are just tools, but we don't understand them as just tools. We understand them as a way of appearing in the world or being perceived in the world. And that's heady stuff. And I don't, I know I wasn't mature enough, you know, age 29 when I graduated to know what to do with that. Um, so what I did with it, with it, well, I just studied, I took their manual and went with it. Yeah. The warrior. The Lord, the warrior, you know, the calling people names, the not really listening to your client, but getting the facts right. and not the feelings or the values behind it. And understanding that, that the word advocacy in those, well, the, let's say the classic law school lawyer interpretation of advocacy is advocating for one side with the notion that there, there is a system out there that will provide the balance and the right decision if two warriors compete, whoever wins the battle will be whoever persuades the judge to make a decision in a certain way. It's just off. Yeah. So, yeah, this concept of peacemaker keeps going around in my head because it's, um, it's an interesting topic because people take offense at the word peacemaker. Have you had that experience before, Jacinta? Well, you know, it's funny because it's like I know people who are vegetarian and when they simply say, oh, I don't eat meat, people get offended cause, and, and get weird about it. But I do know exactly what you mean. People somehow feel defensive if you say that you're work is intended to promote peace or if you're a peacemaker. I mean, you choose to use that term, which I think is courageous and, and quite lovely. Yeah, you, you're wearing my pen too, I'm sure. And, yes. Uh, I, I wear it on my sleeve. And I, I, there is a distinction, a very important distinction in, in, a, in the peacemaker moniker, though, Jacinta, that I think people need to understand is that a, a peacemaker doesn't, come to another person or another place and, and make peace or create peace. I think a peacemaker, at least the way I'm comfortable with it, is I feel my job is to create a space, a safe space where peace can be achieved. It's not my peace that I'm imposing on anybody. I, I just have an innate belief that we all are peacemakers and that we would prefer peace over turmoil. And so what I love about the peacemaker work is that I get to to experience other people's peace and what peace means to them. Because if we ask the right questions and listen, gosh darn, we, we experience you know, peace that's unlike our peace. Yes. But, but putting it together, you know, I think yeah, we can change the world. And I'm okay with changing the world. 
Yeah, yeah, for the better. It's funny because I think, going back to your question about how people react to the word, I'm wondering if it's because if you say something to do with peace or a peacemaker, people do interpret that as, that's my agenda. And yet when you describe it the way you have in that your goal is to create an environment where people can have the conversations that matter to deal with the problems that are perhaps propelling or escalating conflict, that that, that is not our agenda. The agenda is just to create the environment. It is, and it's a, it is a limited agenda. We're not invested in the result because the result will come as a result of our doing our job well, but it also requires the participation of, of others around us, you know, say our clients. Yes. And we, we certainly have clients, right, who don't have those skills or, or their family of origin or their life experience creates blocks to their ability to open up and, and even feel safe in that space that we're hold or trying to hold for them. And then our role is to respect uh, our clients' orientation and even limitations by being okay with the fact that now might not be the time. Yeah. And that our agenda has to not be their agenda. Yeah, and there's a beauty in that, isn't there? You know, yeah. Because, because you don't, you can only, you only push, you know, you only push so much. And, and when you get a... Um, feedback or information that this is as far as someone can goes, you know, there's not, I don't feel regret or resentment or the wish for anything else. I just, I always marvel that that's where this person is and they're a different person than they were before they experienced that space. So I think every little bit is, is helpful. Well, yes. And, and it, bring, cool. it brings you to the, to the whole role of the lawyer where we are so focused on outcome, you know, it's like law school prepares us to think that we determine outcome, even though so often if you're in a litigation situation, it is out of your control. And yet, if our outcome means that someone gained insight into what they need, what they hope for, or what even what their problem is, if we can let go of the agenda that we need to deliver a specific outcome, that in and of itself can change people. That you know, people don't often experience others accepting them where they're at. Yeah, I think that's, that awareness is the key to our work. Okay, so Kevin, you and I are both in the world where we train lawyers who choose to learn, at least, about other ways of practicing law. And in doing that, we both meet the resistance of lawyers who are really good at what they were trained to do. How important is it in those situations for you to be able to say, hey, man, I've been there. I did the litigation. You know, I didn't just decide to be some wimpy settlement-focused advocate. How does that show up for you? I think it's a, it's a great conversation because and any conversation is a great conversation, I think, in the work that we do. And so often what we're taught in law school is not to have conversation. <laughs> Right. We don't we don't pick up the phone and say, hey, Jacinta, how are you doing today? You know, I got your 50 page pleading today, you know, and 
it, it makes me think that maybe we can talk, you know, we'll talk right. about this. Um, so, you know, when I run into a lawyer who is looking for outcome, and we find it in our collaborative work oh, yes. or mediation, mediation work all the time. And I don't know that I've ever thought about this, but I, as you were talking about this, what it seems like to me is outcome is the reward that we get by what we've been taught in law school because we're taught in law school that the outcome is the most important thing. And how you measure the outcome is usually financially or a better residential schedule or you nice, know, nice. one with your client is the primary residential parent, you know, yeah. perhaps, or not having restrictions in place. Um, when it pops up now, I, I am willing to have that necessary conversation, you know, that difficult conversation. I'm going to redo this because this is, okay. You know, when you think about outcome, you'll often hear people say, like in everyday conversation, you know, I can live with what happened. I can, I can handle that outcome. I just don't like how it happened. I don't like the way she did it. I don't like the way he treated me when he did that. And so often when I engage with clients in the way that you're describing, they identify to me their needs at a much different level from the fact-based inquiry that lawyers are trained to do in order to determine if there's enough evidence to get them the thing that they say they want. And the other thing I've noticed in practice is how often clients, though sincere at the early stage of any dispute, have a sense that there is limited possibility and therefore mm -hmm. their choice for what they might say they want or need in terms of a demand or a position will change as some of those needs are met, particularly the need to feel that they're respected and treated fairly. And so I think sometimes as lawyers, we can forget that outcome to our clients is as much about how they get there as what they get in the end. Isn't that exciting, Jacinta? I mean, in the shift in your practice, or I, I have found it to be very exciting, the shift from how I do client consultations or did client consultations out of law school where I barely looked at my client. I just asked questions and I wrote notes. Yes. But now I take very few notes and I look at them and I meet their eyes and I get to explore, I get to, it's like a gift of, did you know there's other opportunities? I hear, you know, that your parents divorced. I hear that your friends are telling you this. I hear your fear at not being able to do stuff. Yeah. You know, I, it's like they're hearing for the first time in a long time from someone that I feel you are capable of so much more. I am so excited about your post-divorce life because yeah. I think you're, you're going to be so happy and I can't wait to see what you become. I ran into a, a former client like in the grocery store last year and she came and she said, oh my God, you said this would happen. And I smiled and said, <laughs> what? She said, you said that you and I would bump into each other in a couple of years and I would be fine. And she looked at me and she said, and I am, thanks. 
And so often because, well, we'll hear our colleagues say, well, you know, we're not social workers. You know, our clients want to talk about their feelings, but we're, we're not social workers. As if it's a separate thing, as if human beings have like emotions in one compartment and demands and positions and legal realities in another. But in the work that you and I do, which is so connected to relationship, uh, ignoring that, I think increasingly will lead to clients saying, this sucks, I'm going to get a different lawyer, I'm going to get a different attorney. And so what bodes well for the future, I think, is the, the sense among the public that you should expect your lawyer to help you. And when you go back to the stories within your own family around your father seeing the practice of law as being a healing profession, we have to acknowledge that that's where the practice of law began. We were, in, we were seen as a healing profession. There was a lot of honor in it. And it's my hope that, I don't know, as people listen to more human beings who are also lawyers talk about their own experience both as lawyers and as humans, that that stereotypical lawyer that you and I played probably pretty well in the early stages of our career might become not the stereotype anymore. And people, I, I think people should expect more from us. We've been given the privilege of a legal education which brings with it you know, a lot of power and authority within a system and, and, and the rule of law. I think we got to be more human. I really appreciate your being willing to be not just the warrior anymore, but the vulnerable warrior. I think about um, all those 20 years of litigation, and I have more fear about running into one of those clients in the grocery store than curiosity about how they're doing. Yeah. Given the collaborative work, I have the same experiences where, you know, I run into people and they give me a hug. I run into the other party of a case and they give me a hug. I, you know, I have client reviews online that are from people who weren't my client. Yes. Because they felt heard and acknowledged uh, in a way that their own attorney didn't. I think yes. the, the public awareness of the work we do is showing up in interesting ways. I mean, number one, a lot of people are coming to us asking for the work. They, we have no litigation on our websites, and, you know, so they know we don't litigate. Um, I've had, I have one client right now who, had a litigate, who still has a litigation attorney, and I'm co-counsel on this. So, you know, I do non-participation agreements, but I don't do contested hearings or trials. But um, this man wanted me to negotiate, um, speak with the other attorney about the parenting plan. And there was a domestic violence protection order against him as well. And I got onto a three-way call with the client and the litigation attorney. And it was like the litigation attorney was speaking a different language, yeah. different tone of voice, different words. I mean, the warrior, you know, yeah. words of filing a motion and, uh, you know, and, and that attorney's incredulousness at 
you know, the thought that I would just pick up the phone and invite the other attorney and their client to a meeting. Um, and that attorney had no hope whatsoever that I would be successful with the client. It wasn't just me. It was the two of us. Understood, yeah. Um, and and we, we were able to get a final residential schedule and at the same time get the, you know, reduce the fear so that the domestic violence protection order was dismissed. Yeah. Um, and the family so is in some ways restored. a very powerful thing yeah. to, to be part of. It is, and, and I think that those of us who have been in that litigation world uh, are able to show respect for that system and that world without ever wanting to go back to it. You know, you yep. asked me, we were having a good chat one time, and you said, like, what's your, what's your kick-ass emotion? And I, I actually interpreted it to mean, what's that emotion I can bring to really kick-ass? When in fact, the question was, what's the emotion that kicks my ass? Yeah. And it was the same. My kick-ass emotion as a, as a good litigator was being aggressive and smart and fast. Fast thinker. And that's also the emotion, those are the emotions that kick my ass. So that I remember, oh, I think about six months after my last court hearing where I behaved in that acceptable, admired lawyer-type behavior. Um, I, I was called on, I was called to sort of act in that way again. It was, a, it was another case. It wasn't going to court, but I could just feel that aggressive, quick-thinking, sharp-tongued litigator coming out in me again, and I felt physically sick. <laughs> I, yeah. was I was telling a friend of mine, and she said, oh, no, it's like a food allergy. You know, you eliminate, you eliminate foods from your diet, and when you put them back in, you get a big response, and you know that food ain't for you. I'll never forget that feeling. I wish more of our colleagues got to enjoy that, the experience of, of feeling that difference. Because when we're, when we're admired for being aggressive, sharp-witted, and sharp-tongued, uh, and we're trained to value outcome over process or people, it's hard. And I find myself often now defending lawyers as a profession and trying to help people understand how lawyers come to be the way they are as the warrior and inviting them to be curious about what, what that must be like and how hard it must be to leave that and choose something different to make a living. Yeah, we're back to that outcome piece of, you know, stepping out of it, because I, well, I really understand what you're saying about when you get your teeth into something and your, you know, your ire gets <laughs> turned on and you rise to the occasion and the spotlight is on you. Um, and I feel the same thing you do. It's mm -hmm. like, this doesn't feel right anymore. Anymore. This this feeling doesn't isn't something that I want because there is nothing positive that is going to come out of me feeling these things. So now we're at this place where something is wrong. Knowing something is wrong, something is not working. If we are having to pull that tool out of our toolbox, 
Yeah. Because it's still it's still there. Yeah. It's just not it's gathering dust. So. I, I you know it, the ire can rise in me when I feel like people think that the choices you and I make, that those choices are based on, you know, you can't cut it in that world or you can't, you're just a wimp or whatever that, you know, you really can't make it out. So I will find myself sometimes, I'm trying to catch myself, wanting to say, oh, by the way, I used to be an aggressive litigator. Because for some reason, there's something about the mentality of being a lawyer that makes me want people to know, oh, I can do that too. And I don't like that about myself. And yet, it's real. It's our job. It's our profession. It is. Our profession, though, is so much broader than what we've been taught it, Taught that it is. Yeah. And so the, the person on one of the listservs who, who emailed me separately so as not to shame me, I guess, on the, the full listserv or shame themselves, I'm not sure. Yeah. But their comment was collaborative law is for those pussy lawyers that can't make it as litigators. Yeah. And, you know, it does, that didn't tick me off. I, I mean, in a way, it made me feel sad for this person. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's like lawyer jokes. You know, when I go golfing, you know, and you know, I meet people on the golf course and I say I'm a collaborative divorce attorney. You know, they'll tell me a lawyer joke that has something to do with dead lawyers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I see I'm willing to go on the listserv. I'm willing to go to law schools. I'm willing to say, you know, that joke was really didn't land well. That's actually I'm, I'm, I would prefer you did not say a joke like that because I don't think any it's not funny. Because yeah. you, you're, you're wishing a whole group of people not to be on this planet. Yeah. And, um, and that's so how do we educate people, you know, professionals, judges, lawyers, family members, um, clients? That's the uh, exciting piece. That's one of the exciting pieces of what we do. And it can also be very tiring. Yeah, and I think... Being aware, being self-aware is, I mean, basically, if you choose to do this work collaboratively, you're inviting constant personal growth and, self, <laughs> and increasing self-awareness or else you won't, you know, survive in it. The, the piece that I like to imagine is that when I'm training younger lawyers who've only been out five, six years or, or younger, there's no objection uh, those who at a young age choose to not litigate are finding, I think, acceptance within their, their tribe uh, in a way that I don't think, you know, we, we didn't get that acceptance in that early stage of our careers. I'm really hoping that we can be a model, a role model for not only how to be really, really good as an advocate, as a lawyer, and be really, really considerate and sensitive to the people that we're helping and to each other. I mean, this whole idea of collegiality among lawyers and how fake it can be sometimes leaves us, I think, having to constantly be respectful, accepting, and also curious of our colleagues that haven't chosen the path that we did. Because I find that when my judgment comes up around those colleagues, 
I'm ineffective anyway. I can't make a difference if I'm judging them. Yeah. So vulnerable warrior. How do you like that title with Peacemaker? I, I, I like it. I think it's an accurate description. I think it would be subtext for me. Yes. Um, because, you know, a peacemaker is also, um, it could be a strong warrior. Yes. Um, it, could be, you could, it could be a chanter. It could be, um, you know, so many different things that I would want to, I'd be careful about uh, just labeling it in, with um, descriptive words. Yeah. I mean, the honorable, honorable warrior. If we yeah. could restore that to what it means to be a lawyer, I think I wouldn't be afraid to send anyone to law school anymore. Yeah, because vulnerability is really the key to so many doors. <laughs> I mean, the vulnerability is the, the oh boy, yeah. shows up in so many different ways in peacemaking work because it takes the energy out of things that arise. So when there is conflict, boy, you know, just a few little words is I feel unsettled. There's three words, you know, that could really bring back away from conflict. Yeah, being, a, um, being I need, authentic. I need present. to talk. Yeah. You know, just can, you know, be an inviting way to have a necessary conversation. Well, it's interesting, too, then, to think about concluding this chat, the idea that it could be as simple as being curious and asking, how can I help? It is, and it takes a lot of courageousness to be a, a peacemaker, Jacinta. And I, you know, I mean, I would offer my support to anyone who's listening to this podcast to, to support them in their peacemaking work. Because um, I reach out to people all the time in my peacemaker work, and it's really important that we know we have a clan, a peacemaking clan. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, t I mean, honestly, people who are listening might very much be interested in, in your clan. You guys are doing some really excellent work. How would people get in touch if they wanted to learn more about Lawyer as Peacemaker? Well, they're always free to reach out to me at kevin at seattleclc.com or look me up at the Seattle Collaborative Law Center uh, here in Seattle. Uh, you'll also see me on the Yahoo listserv. I think it's a great way for people to have dialogue and share stuff that's going on. Yeah, and if there's any lawyers who are listeners uh, who don't know much about collaborative practice or collaborative law, get in touch with Kevin or with me. I'm just so glad to have this chat, my friend. It started with an email a few months ago where we were like, what about betrayal as a theme? And we didn't even touch on the word because I think that a healthy, a healthy response to the experiences we've all had in life is what led you to doing the work that you're doing. Jacinta, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Kevin. Talk soon. All right. Bye-bye.